generations. It's called A New Life. A majestic Buddha sitting in the center of the hall, resting so silent in the midst of our world, while we, on the other hand, squirm, fidget, imaginings, everyone still but me, chasing our smallest thoughts, quelling our desire over and over again, living in a world, living in a world just missed. Pulling us towards what end? How to wake up in the midst of all this? Making friends with all these complexities, all these monologues. Could it be as simple as bowing to each new arrival? Could it be as simple as bowing to each new arrival, befriending even the difficult and frightened parts, firmly establishing yourself, once again finding no place better, finding no place better than this flimsy breath, a grounded body, and this wayward mind? With everything settled, the heart, like a shy puppy, begins to crawl out of its hiding place, excited to be in the wonder of a new life. So, that's the end. It's over. So I thought I would read, uh, we'll see where I go this evening. It's, um, I'll, I was thinking, you know, one of the things when I came back from India this time, I walked 250 miles uh, in Nepal uh, in June, and uh, never was there a flat spot. That says it all, you know. But I was also... Uh, touched by, in Upper Mustang, near the Tibetan border, uh, these old, old caves and in uh, these monasteries that had uh, stood there for, you know, 1,300 years. And, uh, oh my, you know, <coughs> such a trip. But what are we doing here? So uh, this is a great list, you know, for um, what we're doing here. It's called Symptoms of Inner Peace. A tendency to think and act spontaneously rather than based on past experience. An unmistakable ability to enjoy each moment. A loss of interest in judging other people. A loss of interest in judging oneself. A loss of interest in interpreting the actions of others a loss of interest in conflict, a loss of the ability to worry, frequent overwhelming episodes of appreciation, contented feelings of connectedness with others and nature, 
frequent bouts of smiling. An increased tendency to let things happen rather than make them happen. An increased receptivity to the love extended by others, as well as the uncontrollable urge to extend it. How's that? You know, doesn't that make all this sometimes uh, complexity and suffering and these uh, wonderful monologues that you just tell yourself about the past and the future and all that? It'll be okay. It's going to work out. You know. So when I was, uh, there was the water jar that was uh, the wagon um, with the the five horses here of mindfulness and and uh, the energy and concentration and faith and wisdom. So I, I took the one with the water in it and put it up here and brought one from another room and, and put it there, but it doesn't have anything in it. So uh, ultimately the wagon is empty. And that's kind of what I'd like to play with tonight about uh, uh, there being... Um, Nothing or nobody in the wagon. So um, I think I'm going to go back to Mary Grace's story that she uh, alluded to. Of um, this was some years ago in in uh, Ladakh, and uh, I went there from Dharamsala, uh, where the Dalai Lama lives, uh, looking for a place for self retreat. And when I got there, I found that there was this mountain uh, with six caves on it and uh, a monastery right nearby where I could uh, get my food. And um, so I concluded that this was a wonderful place. Uh, It had been practiced uh, for centuries by yogis. Not easy, you know, but... um, uh, perfectly acceptable. And one of the things, just as part of my practice, is that uh, this was a, a mountain, and ab- above it there was probably a 40-foot um, Milarepa, probably the, the greatest of Tibetan yogis, uh, carved in the rock and, and painted. It was absolutely uh, stunning. It was uh, very visual, so this uh, was very inspiring and uh, kind of kept me on track. And also, uh, there was a, a circumambulation around this mountain that I did every day. That was in right after lunch, um, the noon meal. Usually I got sleepy, so I would take a walk. And uh, as I took a walk around it, uh, there was on the other side of it, uh, which would happen, uh, it seemed like every few days or so, uh, there would be uh, the burning of bodies. And it's all great old tradition to um, inhabit and uh, kind of is really commune uh, with the charnel grounds. So uh, every day I would do this circumambulation and um, <clears throat> One day as I came around, there were two Ladakis came and they grabbed me and they brought me over uh, to, the, to the fire, the 
bring fire, and they hadn't started this fire. And it was a young, probably he was uh, tw- probably 22 or something, Australian boy. And he had died in one of the uh, guest houses in Ley. And um, in their tradition, they uh, decided I was the one that uh, they knew that I was kind of hanging out in the uh, caves there. So they uh, insisted that I do some kind of funeral rites since this young Australian boy, they couldn't, can't get his body out of there. And so uh, the, the, what they can do is just to burn it. And, uh, they'd informed uh, the parents and stuff. And so uh, there was this uh, whole process of, uh, they brought me oil and, and incense and all this stuff. And then I had to, excuse me, make up a ritual. Uh, I was thinking, is this just for them? You know, and I went through this process of, of kind of doing some chants and circ- circumambulating and, and um, somewhat I knew of some of their tradition and stuff. And, and they were very happy, by the way, especially that a foreigner was taking care of a foreigner, you know. And, um, but at the same time, there was this whole process of, uh, it was like seeing myself uh, when I first came to Asia in my 20, early 20s, uh, and uh, having lost uh, friends up in the mountains, you know. And so it was always that thing of, well, are you going to make it? And um, I'd had a few close encounters. I, I have more than uh, nine lives, by the way, just to, for you to know that. It's okay. But there was a piece about, oh, uh, where does this go? You know, what, what, what exactly are we doing? You know. Uh, you know, also I have to just admit, I was going to do it at the beginning, is, is I apologize for, uh, since I've come back from India, I notice I say, you know, all the time, but I want you to know. <laughs> you know. <laughs> See? But it was very profound uh, for me, this uh, young man, and kind of seeing myself uh, in him. And then going back and sitting. And there was part of me that, as I went back to sit, uh, I don't know if this is an odd thing to say, but he came to visit me. Uh, and because I felt in some ways, you know, he had died in difficult circumstances, you know, alone in some guest house as a very young man, and um, so it was actually for the next, uh, I was there for a couple of weeks more uh, practicing of, um, in a sense, intending. Uh, when I sat in the morning, when I did my, early morning when I did my metta, uh, I sort of have it worked out where I have uh, morning before breakfast, uh, and then uh, sitting from uh, actually after breakfast till noon. But that morning sitting, I would uh, kind of wish for him that somehow that he could get it, that uh, he could uh, free himself, you know. And I don't know what happened or what that was about. But for me, it was so impactful of how important it is, uh, our intention of intending to, in this case, was actually sending, uh, understanding the circumstances of, 
oh, only if he could somehow move on. I didn't feel he had in some ways. But I tried, you know, uh, to deal with it. Really, tonight I wanted to uh, talk about the fact that in the fundamentals, uh, one of the pieces here is uh, these practices, uh, when they are, uh, in a sense, uh, worked with with these uh, spiritual qualities. And that they, uh, one of the truths of it is there is the practice of recognizing of understanding, which is simply the wisdom. And the wisdom, Heather spoke of a little bit last night, and I'd like to continue. And it really comes out of this practice of this young man, uh, because the truth is um, we're all headed for the same place. And that no matter uh, how solid and real and and uh, healthy and all of that. Uh, this is only going in one direction, you know. And so part of the wisdom uh, practices here, uh, when we fundamentally, you know, we have actually created enough collectedness uh, and there's enough energetics to actually be settled in looking at what's happening, uh, we also uh, get it on some level that uh, we have uh, a... Um, even if we don't understand, there's a sense of faith or conviction that uh, this is moving in the right direction and that this has been moving in the right direction for 2,500 years. People have uh, practiced this over and over again and actually touched into understanding, have touched into wisdom, have touched into insight of uh, how this all operates on some level because that's what we're doing here. I have to say, um, for the many years that I practice, my first 10 years, uh, the one thing that was lacking uh, mostly was wisdom. You know, it was a piece that uh, there, was, there was all the other factors, actually, but the wisdom was missing. And one of the pieces I began to uh, slowly uh, understand and part of my mind, uh, what does my mind do? It actually... Uh, tries to concretize, it takes all my experiences and freezes them in some way so that basically uh, I feel safe, you know? But as we actually work and investigate uh, this practice of kind of sitting there and fidgeting and squirming and, uh, you know, getting caught in thoughts or feelings, uh, the truth of the body, uh, is that we begin to uh, recognize that uh, there is the intellectual side of, you know everything is impermanent, right? That you know. But the fundamentals of the practice is getting underneath. And sometimes I like the translation of the word vipassana instead of just to see clearly, as to see into the subtle, you know? Because that's what we're doing. We're trying to see into the subtle of how uh, we, in a sense, uh, operate, you know? And this is so fundamental to it. 
So there's the intellectual knowledge of that you know that's so. But there's also, uh, they talk about this as, uh, I like the language of intuitive insight. And so there's a visceral sense, uh, which is tremendously liberating. You know, oh, I know this is so. You know, in, in, in the sense, if I can use the language, in my bones, uh, that all of this, uh, just like that young man has uh, risen, is there for a while, and um, we all have the same fate. It's good news. You know, uh, it's really good news, you know. Um, everything conditioned. Everything conditioned is fleeting and permanent. Not what it necessarily appears to be. No. And so, in the truth of this, of learning it on a visceral level, on an intuitive level, uh, it simply gives you a power. And that power is your ability to let go. No. And whether it's a sensation, uh, whether it's a feeling, whether it's a story, whether it's a memory, all of it is fundamentally uh, it due to causes and conditions, it's arisen and uh, it passes away. <coughs> and we think somehow, oh, we get this. But I can tell you, it, you have to do this over and over again to really begin to recognize that uh, this is a truth. I was sitting a, a month-long or six-week retreat in, in Bodhgaya one year, and I had this teacher, uh, Venerable Antonio, and uh, uh, he was uh, from Sardinia, and he was albino, you know? Um, and he gave probably the worst Dharma talks I've ever heard. <laughs> you know? I'm trying to match it, but anyway. <laughs> you know, one of, the, one of the things he did every morning, we would, uh, we w- there was sort of a a little different. Uh, there was all this chanting in the morning and stuff. But he would say the same thing every morning. And uh, what he'd say is, to grab the head of the snake, you get bit. You know, and so that's really unpleasant. You grab the tail of the snake, which is pleasant, and you still get bit, but later. You know. And that was his uh, the way he was kind of do- every morning, same routine, you know. And uh, you really started getting, oh, you know what? Uh, all this pleasant and unpleasantness, you know, it's very tricky, you know. And um, even the pleasantness uh, it will catch you, you know. So we have this impermanent, all phenomena, all phenomena, you know, whether it's, uh, I don't know if Mount Everest just shrunk, 
you know, I'm not sure, or it went up a little. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but something happened uh, there. So even the mountains, uh, again, and one of the things I love about the Himalayas, and I also love about the Tetons in this country, is uh, they're young, you know. Uh, they're young and they're steep, and they're, uh, in the case of the Himalayas, they're still they were, uh, as the Asian, the Eurasia continent and the Indian continent were pushing the thing up every year, you know. So I hope uh, you will keep, it's one of the things I keep learning. It's most extreme, of course, is the fact that um, uh, we are uh, on a trajectory and you just don't know when. And so it's kind of sobering. Uh, but I hope in the sense of sobering, it also uh, brings a vitality uh, of the truth of this, you know, uh, your destiny. You know, and that you can start living in a way that reflects uh, the truth uh, of that phenomena. Also, these are kind of the wisdom factors, these characteristics. And the second one, uh, which is all tainted and stained states are painful. All tainted and stained states are painful. Uh, and it's such a simple truth that um, that first arrow that Heather was talking about last night, uh, the physical part of it, you know, uh, it's all impermanent, and it's also our lot that we will uh, suffer that way. And the Buddha said, oh, I can't particularly do anything about that first arrow. Uh, that was, comes with the territory of having been born and live in these, uh, uh, these bodies. That, that is uh, the, the truth with it. We look anywhere and we see the Dharma of nature as it uh, happens. The Buddha did say that uh, it's true that that first arrow we can't do anything about. But part of this whole practice, just like seeing into uh, the uh, impermanence of things and seeing that there's actually a sense of freedom because we know we have the power to let go. In the same way uh, with suffering, that uh, so much of the suffering is not the first arrow, but uh, all of our um, attachments and fears, which deal with the second, third, fourth, fifth arrow that we ourselves uh, are producing. And if you haven't noticed, you're really good at this, you know? 
and uh, it is your story, your history, uh, your sense of, um, you know, whether true or not, y- y- your story, you know, who you think you are. And we have to again and again kind of come up against this. And one of the beauties of this practice is the truth of that when we sit here, uh, the past, uh, unbidden by us, appears, sometimes in the body, sometimes in the memory, and that there is uh, the truth that we uh, somehow uh, touch into it, you know? And uh, it's not pleasant. But there's also the good news here that every time that we do touch into it in this environment, because this environment is based really on the fact that uh, ultimately if you can remember, if you can remember to let go and bring your attention back to your, a simple object like the body or breath, you know, then uh, it begins to untangle itself. And they sometimes they use the language just purification. Uh, we're sitting here, uh, things appear, uh, they catch us for a little while, we see them for what they are, and we untangle them. I remember years ago, I was, um, I was in Burma sitting, and uh, when I was a kid, uh, I, w- I was sent to boarding school when I was six in Switzerland, and um, I had a uh, well, after the war, in the 50s, um, the person who owned the school in this little ski resort in Switzerland had uh, taken his money and um, bought the school, and he hated Americans, you know. And so there were about 27 kids in the school, and my sister and I were there. And uh, literally, he, uh, I can use the language he uh, uh, he caused an incredible amount of suffering for us, you know. And a lot of stuff uh, in my childhood I pretty much buried and uh, I really never wanted to deal with it, you know. And I was sitting in Burma and they had put me up front at this retreat. And um, uh, the Burmese, you know, their hips and their knees uh, this is no pillows, no nothing. They just kind of sit there flat, right? And so, uh, and, and the sittings would go on for two hours, two and a half hours, you know. After an hour and a half, uh, I was sitting up front, I was trying to be a good, uh, you know, good American boy. And I, 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 w- yeah, I was also you know, tough, you know. And um, I'd make it an hour and a half, and then, you know, it's head towards two hours, and I would be in absolute pain, you know, and there they'd be sitting there, they wouldn't move, you know, and um, uh, so it, it got more and more intense as I sat there, and the wonderful thing about pain like that is it creates a tremendous amount of concentration, <laughs> you know, it's really good stuff that way, so I got a lot of concentration, but as I was sitting there, suddenly out of nowhere, you know, there was um, this pain in my shoulder. And, uh, and suddenly it arose, and just in that moment, a memory of being hit with a stick when I was a little kid in the school. 
uh, and that I had buried suddenly arose uh, just through the causes and circumstances of this. And I could feel immediately that what that was, was it was released and it, was n- it never came back, you know. And so, in a way, I began to really trust this practice as something that untangles sometimes even things that you don't know that are there or have been buried long ago. And that uh, they um, can have a tendency of liberating themselves. And it was so liberating. I don't want to do this again. You know, that was very painful <laughs> sitting there. But it also taught me something about, about trusting this practice, maybe a piece around the conviction or faith. That uh, and it really is helpful in the interviews and stuff. I know you can do this. You know, and I know there's stories that are incredibly, sometimes, you know, we try to bury stuff and we don't even know they're there. And sometimes they come up here. But what they come up, I always think that, well, the psyche knows what it needs. And that can you kind of trust whatever arises, if you're willing to do this practice, that it will arise and it will have the propensity to be untangled. You know, and I have completely faith in this, and it, that's the one thing it, it kind of gave me that conviction that, okay, even uh, the worst of it is available on some level. The third piece around wisdom. Sometimes I think I, I have nothing to say because it simply is referred to as um, no self, you know? But we have to understand this in a kind of proper way. The Buddha was saying he was talking about the universal. And the universal truth, that that's not separate, uh, is that there is no solid and fixed uh, person that it's simply uh, something that arises due to causes and conditions. You know? So we are actually being born uh, every moment. Uh, this uh, relative self is appearing and disappearing. You know? That's also really good news, and it's a really great piece of this uh, wisdom practice. You know, kind of a quotation. All phenomena, all phenomena is empty, devoid of self-entity. All phenomena is empty, devoid of self-entity. You know. But we have to understand this. That's from the universal point of view. That, uh, so don't get hung up about yourself. You know, uh, it is simply uh, a transient thing that arises uh, due to the causes and conditions, you know. And, um, you know, the Buddha simply talked about it as these, what he called the five khandhas or five... um, That was a senior moment. That's good. 
know. But there's body and there's feeling, there's perception, there's mental conditioning and, uh, and uh, relative consciousness. And that is the relative world we live in. And it is simply something that's in this impermanent phenomenon, constantly moving. It has uh, no basis, you know. So on the one side, uh, we can see it through the eyes of uh, the impermanent phenomena. But the other is through the relative world that we live in. And this relative world that we live in, uh, we could say, uh, is a process of understanding uh, the relative self. And so we can't uh, just kind of say, oh, well, you know, I can ignore things because there's no real self. You know, that would be kind of fun. But uh, it's not what we're actually dealing with here. What we're trying to do is find a balance. And the balance is that when uh, I cling and create the suffering of something that's real about myself, that I have the power to let go of. You know, and that is essential in learning this. You know, uh, that is just truth, you know. And the other part of it is, oh my goodness, you, you are here. You do have a history. And I hope you understand the history that we all have. Somehow we come to this and uh, there, every person here, if you sit down with anyone, this is what we get to do as teachers. Uh, we touch into people's suffering. You know, And that suffering if we don't get lost and we understand it, uh, it is that that kind of opens our heart uh, and gives us permission in the relative world uh, to to care simply. So it's not in that way, not a negative. It's just the way it is, you know. So I'm going to make a leap here about wisdom. Is we have um, kind of this relative reality, and that relative reality is always... Uh, it's something that's impermanent, it's always arising and vanishing. Who you think you are is always arising and vanishing. But there's also something else. You know? And this something else uh, is not something that you can put your finger on. But it's something that's always kind of been there. Uh, I'll read, this is from 
uh, one of my favorite pieces from Ajahn Mahabua. Whatever arises has to vanish. Whatever is true, whatever is a natural principle in of itself won't vanish. In other words, the pure mind won't vanish. Everything of every sort may vanish, but that which knows their vanishing doesn't vanish. This vanishes, that vanishes, but the one which knows their vanishing, the one who knows their vanishing, doesn't vanish. Whether or not we try to leave it untouched, it keeps on knowing. The mind, in its kind of big sense, blankets everything. So the relative world will stay the relative world. No. But it's also true that there is uh, uh, the truth of that that's awake or aware, that awareness itself, uh, is not limited. No. It's something that's always been there uh, from when you were born to when you die, and we don't know anything else, you know. But uh, that in itself, uh, our capacity, to, in a sense, it's almost like a, turning the awareness around on itself, the relative awareness, and seeing that there is something that uh, is knowing that's not caught, that is essentially uh, free of the whole thing, of the uh, temporal nature of things. It's tricky because you have to be so fundamentally kind of relaxed uh, in the body uh, and not struggling with things and noticing that there is uh, that that knows, there with the knowing. And it has a tendency of not getting caught uh, in this play of being. And I've found over the years, uh, and, and it's, I forget, but I also know it's always there, and it always can be recognized. It's not something. And we come here and we work specifically with kind of the letting go of the relative and all that. But there's something else holding all this. This is a piece I like. This is from Buddha Dasa. So Ajahn Buddha Dasa. And it really speaks to uh, that that's not caught, you know, that uh, nirvana is peace uh, and is available. Wherever you find coolness in your experience, mark that coolness firmly in your heart and breathe out and in. 
Breathing in is cool. Breathing out is cool. And cool in and cool out. Do this a little while. This is an excellent lesson that will help you to become a lover of Nibbana. The instinct will develop in an enlightened way more and more if you practice like this. Natural Nibbana. The unconscious quenching of the defilements will occur more often and easily. This is the best way to help nature. Natural Nibbana can happen simply because the defilements, the difficulties, the arise and end naturally because they are just another kind of concocted nature. Every time the defilements don't appear, nirvana becomes apparent to the mind. You know. So this is a big deal. You know? So you come here and you go through all these struggles and you're trying to figure out and you see somebody saying, oh, well, there's something holding all this that's bigger than the relative part. And every moment, every moment that you're not struggling, you know, and we're so habituated to figuring it out or knowing it or uh, somehow uh, pushing it or pulling it, uh, that we don't see the simplicity of this, that actually there are all these phenomenal times where nothing is going on and that it is the coolness. You know, and it has this ability uh, to uh, lighten uh, and give yourself a spaciousness. You know. and it's not based on anything. It's just something that due to the causes and conditions, we begin to notice it and see that uh, there's no struggle there. Therefore, there's a sense of peace and ease there and you begin to rely on it more and more. You know. It's really good instructions. You know. We're creatures uh, so habituated to struggle, you know, and, um, you know, for the pleasant, uh, we take all our energetics and somehow believe that's the way we'll be happy. So we struggle for the pleasant, you know. And then we take all of our energetics and we struggle against uh, what's unpleasant. And so there is this constant uh, struggle or this war that's going on, uh, uh, passing uh, the center point, uh, what Ajahn Buddha Das is talking about. Oh, there's this center point. The problem with the center point is uh, there is uh, no charge there. And everything else is about a charge. You know? And so he's just pointing at a place where there's no charge. And can you begin to recognize that place of no charge and realize that there is a, a, a feeling of peace and ease there that uh, is, in a sense, moving you uh, out of the complexity uh, into uh, a simple open awareness that has a lot of space. It has um, 
there's nothing in the way. So it is our human capacity to get out of our own way, to have kind of the uh, the empty cart or wagon. Uh, it doesn't have anything. You, you have been doing this the whole time. You know. And my job is just to point to say, okay, hey, there's this kind of zero point. You know. And what does it feel like not to struggle? And I know you come across this. So, stay out of trouble. You know, wanting is endless. You know, aversive and judgment, all of it is, it's endless. It goes on and on and on. And it all comes out of, you know, this uh, simple, the defilements of, uh, you know, they talk about it as, as kind of the center of the universe of our kind of complexity is based on kind of this greed, hatred, and delusion. And it's just kind of spinning there all the time. But when it's not there, when you're not in reaction, and you're just sitting there, or you're just walking, or you're just breathing, no. Note it. There's a quality there. So, a new life. A majestic Buddha sitting in the center of our hall, resting so silent in the midst of our world, while we, on the other hand, squirm, fidget, imaginings, everyone's still but me. Chasing our smallest thoughts, quelling our desire over and over again, living in a world, living in a world just missed. Another mind wave drawing us out again and again. Somewhere in the cloud, you know, the cloud. All of our old lives are stored. Images, plans, memories, dreams, thoughts, emotions, pulling us towards what end? How to wake up in the midst of all this, making friends with all these complex monologues? Could it be as simple as bowing to each new arrival? Could it be as simple as bowing to each new arrival, befriending even the difficult and frightened parts, firmly establishing yourself, once again finding no place better than this flimsy breath, a grounded body, and a wayward mind? 
with everything settled, the heart, the heart, like a shy puppy, begins to crawl out of its hiding place. The heart, like a shy puppy, begins to crawl out of its hiding place, excited to be in the wonder of a new life. Let's just sit for a moment. I trust you do know. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.